The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. There is a judgment greater than anything you've ever known. It won't be long. Your life will pass by as a vapor and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And every secret deed and thought, every wrinkle, every spot will be in view. Before the one who knows all things, the Lord of Lord and King of Kings, you know the one you never knew. While you have breath, you have a choice to make in life. Turn away from your sin and believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him from the judgment that's to come He is the shelter from the coming storm All creation shakes at the mention of His name. He has power over life and death. Every knee will bow and tongue confess. Heaven and earth will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father will you bow, will you surrender to His majesty. He can save you from the might of all your sin. This is the fight in which He stands. In perfect victory, while you have breath. have a choice to make in life turn away from your sin and believe on the risen Christ you can find peace in him from the judgment that's to he is a shelter from the coming storm While you have breath You have a choice to make in life from all your sin and believe on the risen Christ you can find peace in him from the judgment that's to come He is a shelter from the coming storm. He's the only shelter from the coming storm.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I have long believed that there is a much higher place to which Jesus is calling us as American Christians, and I've been also increasingly convicted that God's people will not move to a higher place until there is a very searching application of God's law to the human conscience and heart. In other words, we must be able to see very clearly what our condition is, our true condition, before a righteous and holy God. And and this will require that we let go of most of what we have been taught for years. Last night, I watched a YouTube video, a woman by the name of Judy, who said she is a prophetess. And so I listened just to see what she would say. And of course, she said America is on the verge of a great victory, that God is going to remove all of those wicked judges <coughs> he's going to remove wicked officers he's going to establish a his country and we're going to prosper greatly she went on to give very specific things that were going to happen and She said, that's God working in them to totally change what's in us? And we're going to have the victory. Not one word of rebuke for sin. Not one word of any sense of God's judgment upon this nation. It was all cotton candy. It was all a lie. But God's people have believed these lying prophets and prophetesses saying everything is going to become wonderful. In Jeremiah's time, the same thing was happening. The prophets were prophesying that Babylon would not come, Nebuchadnezzar would not come back and burn down the city. Well, Jeremiah was saying, yes, he's coming back. And yes, he's going to burn down the city. But today, people don't want to believe that. My work as a pastor has shown me the great weakness of Christians in our day. Older members in the church will become just a little bit excited about Jesus and then very quickly it dissipates and it's gone and they go back to believing the old things they used to believe, that that you can sin and still enter into heaven. That Jesus forgave all of your past, present, and future sins on the cross. Lies like these destroy the Christian church. Now, I have to also say that the Holy Spirit has led me into a a great dissatisfaction with my own lack of faith and love. I've often felt myself weak in the presence of temptation. I frequently need to hold days of fasting and prayer. I need to spend time overhauling my own walk with Jesus in order to retain communion with God so that I will know what to come and talk about on this broadcast. As I look at the condition of the Christian church today, I've been forced to ask, Lord, isn't there something much more that you want for us? 
were the promises and means provided in the gospel for the establishment of the Christian life really so wimpy and so weak and so cotton candy ugly? So I've been spending a lot of time, and I will increasingly spend time in the days to come, searching the scriptures. Already I've found very clearly an indication that it is meant for Christians to live without any known sin in their lives, to walk clean before God, to walk with integrity, not to be caught in all of the foolishness of this world, the entertainment, And I put it very plainly. I want Jesus. And I want to be in heaven with him. And I know the current state of the church in America will cause it to be cast into hell. Because the church today in America does not in any manner measure up to what is expected as I read the scriptures. You're going to have to turn off your nice preacher and you're going to have to search the word of God and you're going to have to fast and pray. You're going to have to devote full energy to finding the way to heaven by means of the cross not by means of some positive-thinking fool who is only going to feed you cotton candy, who has no concept of what discipline means or no concept of what dying to self means. Some of you listening live out your lives day by day. You may check in and listen to see what Pastor Ray's saying, and then you... Check out what somebody else is saying. and But no real time on your face before God and no real time in the scriptures. This has prompted me today to go back to the book, Holy Spirit Revivals by Charles Finney. Charles Finney ministered in the 1800s without the means of radio or television. They say he brought into the kingdom of God more than 250,000 souls. I want to share with you what he went through in this deeper walk with Jesus as he as he sought to establish once and for all, that place of righteousness based on the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 27, page 234. He has just gone to Boston where he is going to minister in a chapel there, the Marlboro Chapel. And he said he found a very unusual state of things there. He found that nowhere had he been, had people been so confused and so misled from the foundations of the faith. And please, may I say to you in all honesty, the foundations of the faith have been destroyed in almost every denomination and almost every church in America. They've made up their own rules. They've made up their own club. They've made up their own beliefs. But they are not in line with the word of God. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to open the scriptures and read for yourself and find that the foolishness of the American church is utter evil before God. He wrote, during the winter in Boston, the Lord gave my own soul a very thorough overhauling 
and a fresh baptism of his spirit. Each time I have labored in Boston, I've been favored with a great deal of the spirit of prayer, and this time was no exception. But that winter in particular, my mind was exceedingly troubled on the questions of personal holiness in regard to the state of the church and its lack of power with God. This has also been my struggle. I've been very concerned about my own lack of power with God. I've struggled also with the questions of my own personal holiness before an almighty God. Oh, you look at my life and you say, No, Pastor, you're clean. No, you're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. And in many ways, I am exceedingly shallow. And I'm crying out to God. This has to change. He says, the Orthodox churches in Boston seemed weak, not only in their faith, but also in their power in the community. The fact that they were making little or no progress in overcoming the heirs of that city greatly affected my heart. I gave myself to a great deal of prayer. After my evening services, I would retire as early as I could, but I rose at four o'clock in the morning because I could no longer sleep. I immediately went to my study and engaged in prayer. My mind was so deeply troubled and so absorbed in prayer that I frequently continued praying from four o'clock until the bell sounded for breakfast at eight o'clock. My days were spent as much as I could get time in searching the scriptures. I read nothing else all that winter besides my Bible, and a great deal of it seemed quite new to me. The Lord took me from Genesis to Revelation. He led me to see the connection between things, the promises and the threatenings and the prophecies that were to be fulfilled. Indeed, the whole Bible seemed to be ablaze with light, not only light, but it seemed as if God's word was infused with the very life of God. While praying in this way for weeks and then months, I had a great struggle to consecrate myself to God in a higher sense than I had ever conceived as possible or thought to be my duty. (laughs) I'm going to stop there a moment. This is where I'm struggling. I am utterly consecrated to God. I know that. But I know there is a higher place I said to my precious wife last night, I feel as though I'm walking on wet pavement, the wet pavement symbolizing the presence of God. And I said to her, I don't want to walk in a puddle. I want to dive into the ocean. I want more of Jesus. There has to be a change in my heart. I've got to forget about myself entirely, completely, and be changed completely at a much higher level for the power of God to bring men and women into that place of total consecration. I had often before, he writes, laid my whole family upon the altar of God and it left them to be dealt with according to his discretion. But this time I had a great struggle about giving up my wife to the will of God. She was in very feeble health, and it was very evident that she could not live long. I'd never before seen so clearly what was implied in placing her and all that I possessed upon the altar of God. For hours I struggled on my knees to give her up unqualifyingly to the will of God, but I found myself unable to do so. I was so surprised at this that I 
I perspired profusely with agony. I struggled and prayed until I was exhausted, and I found myself entirely unable to give her up to God's will without any objection to his doing with her just as he pleased. This troubled me much. I wrote to my wife, telling her what a struggle I'd had and the concerns that I'd felt at not being willing to commit her without reserve to the perfect will of God. Very soon after this, the thought occurred to me that after all my laboring and preaching, my will and my heart were still not really submitted to God. I'm going to stop there. Until you are willing to give up the idea that you are utterly and completely submitted to God, you will never go deeper. You found a comfortable place, and there you stay. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. God loves me. Everything's great. But your life is shallow. You have no power to win the lost. Something is not right. But you comfort yourself with, Oh, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Are you? Are you sure? He continues, The bitterness of death seemed for a moment to possess me at the thought that my religion might not be but mere feelings. But after struggling for a few moments with this discouragement and bitterness which I have since attributed to a fiery dart of Satan I was I was enabled to fall back on the infinitely blessed and perfect will of God in a deeper sense than I'd ever done before I then told the Lord that I had had such confidence in him that I felt perfectly willing to let myself and my wife and my family be dealt with according to his wisdom I then had a deeper sense than ever before of what was implied in consecration to God. I spent a long time on my knees considering the matter, giving up everything to the will of God, the interests of the church, the progress of religion, the conversion of the world, the salvation or damnation of my own soul as the will of God might decide. This really bites me. Am I willing to totally give up the interests of the gospel into the hand of Jesus? The conversion of the world. Am I willing to give up thinking I'm somebody and that I can do something? Am I willing to put my wife my children, my grandchildren, friends? Am I willing to put all of them into the hands of Christ? Not as something shallow. I'm talking about something at a very deep heart level. Even your own salvation. even to the damnation of your own soul as the will of God might decide. Indeed, Finney writes, I went so far as to say to the Lord with all my heart that he might do anything he wanted to do with me or mine. I had such perfect confidence in his goodness and love as to believe that he could agree to do nothing to which I would object. I felt a kind of holy boldness in telling him to do with me whatever seemed good to him. I knew that he could not do anything that was not perfectly wise and good. Therefore, I had the best grounds for accepting whatever he would agree to do in respect to me and mine. I'd never before known so deep and perfect a rest in the will of God. Now, please, this is not just some intellectual understanding. 
I'm talking about a position that he has come to through weeks and months of searching the scriptures and bearing his soul before God and letting the Holy Spirit deal to the very depths of his being where he has turned aside from the foolishness of the parties of the world and the celebrations of wicked things, where he has turned aside totally and completely from everything of himself. We don't come to that quickly. We can say it intellectually. Oh, yes, I belong to God. I have no known sin. He's my Lord and Savior. While your heart is still filled with wickedness and bitterness and anger. No, Finney here, Charles Finney here is talking about a deep process of coming to terms with the reality that he's been much too shallow. And so he has gone deep. What appeared strange to me at that time was that I could not get hold of my former hope, nor could I recall with any freshness any of the former seasons of communion and divine assurance that I had experienced. I seemed to have given up my hope and rested everything on a new foundation. I gave up my hope from any past experience to the extent that I did not know whether God intended to save me or not. I can't tell you how utterly vital this is, that we come into the presence of God and that we give up all of our past attainments in the Spirit, that we give up all of our past experiences with God and have an immediate sense of his presence in our hearts. He doesn't even know at this point if God will save him. And neither does he feel concerned to know. He was willing to wait and see. I told God that I found that he kept me, worked in me by the Holy Spirit, was preparing me for heaven, and was working holiness and eternal life in my soul. Do you know today that God is working in you holiness and eternal life in preparation for eternity? He writes, I would take it for granted that he intended to save me. On the other hand, if I found myself empty of divine strength, light, and love, I would conclude that he sought wise and expedient to send me to hell. In either case, I would accept his will. My mind settled into perfect stillness. Do you understand what he's doing? He's giving up himself. He's giving up himself as the point of reference. The world no longer centers around Charles Finney. And you know what? I don't want the world to center around Ray Greenlee in any respect. I don't want to think of myself as the center. And now how is God treating me? And what does God want? And how are other people treating me? And and am I succeeding in what I'm doing? All of those questions are utter foolishness. Throw them away. They have no weight or no meaning before the throne of God. He is the center, not you. Oh, but, but pastor, I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to go here and I have to go there. And really, who's going to do that going when you're dead and moldering in the casket? Obviously, nobody. Is it all that important then? Isn't what God wants to do in your life much more important than what you want to do in your life? I want to put my future totally in the hands of God. I want him to be my judge. I don't want to be my judge. 
I don't want to be the one who evaluates and says, you know, Pastor Ray, you're just not getting the job done. You better try harder. You better preach better. You better do this. You better do that. No, thank you. I want to be judged by Jesus Christ. And I trust his judgment. Now, I know many people don't listen to this broadcast because these are frankly not very comfortable things to talk about. No, people want their, their thank you, Jesus, everything is great, I'm going to win, the world is going to be set right, and we're going to be prosperous again, and, and the world belongs to God, and America is God's country, and, and we're not wicked, and we're not evil, God's going to judge the wicked and the evil, and we're going to continue with great prosperity, and everything is a happy, happy fence around, around God's people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The judgments of God have already begun to be poured out upon America. The president we currently have and the president we will soon have, both will be judgments from God against this nation. We are seeing America being utterly given over to every evil and wicked thing from the local church and its love of sexual uncleanness all the way through our institutions, our organizations, Every evil thing is beginning to spew forth. The vileness of the devil is taking over America. And that is not going to be reversed. America will be destroyed. America will burn. I'm not going to say when. Don't ask me when. The key question is not when will America burn. The question is, will you burn with America? Or are you willing to go deep and find that place of standing in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to renounce all wickedness, all worldly ways? Are you willing to renounce the entertainment of this wicked world? Are you willing to give up your your social media? Are you willing to search after Jesus? Are you willing to give up all of the rules, man-made rules in the church and to surrender yourself to Jesus? He continues, the thought that I might be lost did not distress me. Indeed, no matter what I thought throughout the rest of the day, I could not find in my mind the least fear, the least disturbing emotion. Nothing troubled me. I was neither elated nor depressed. I was neither joyful nor sorrowful. My confidence in God was perfect. My acceptance of His will was perfect and my mind was as calm as heaven. Does that describe you today? Is that where your mind is? What is the state of your mind today? Are you filled with bitterness and anger, judgments? Are you filled with criticisms? Are you filled with ambitions? Or are you at peace with Jesus? Are you willing to submit your wife and your children, your family? Are you willing to submit your life, even whether you are saved or lost? Are you willing to submit everything into the hands of Jesus Christ and let him be the center and you get out of the way? He says, when evening came, the question arose in my mind, 
What if God should send me to hell? What then? I knew I would not object to it. But can he send a person to hell who accepts his will in the sense in which you do? This inquiry was no sooner raised in my mind than settled. I said, no, it is impossible. Hell could not be hell to me if I accepted God's perfect will. This filled my mind with joy that kept developing more and more for weeks and months. Indeed, for years, my mind was too full of joy to feel trouble on any subject. My prayer that had been so fervent and regular for so long a period seemed up to end up as, Your will be done. Matthew 6.10 it seemed as if my desires were all met. What I had been praying for myself, I had received in a way I had least expected. Holiness to the Lord seemed to be inscribed on all the thoughts of my mind. I had such a strong faith that God would accomplish all his perfect will that I could not be anxious about anything the great anxiousness about which my mind had been troubled during my seasons of agonizing prayer seemed to be set aside. Thus, for a long time, when I went to God to commune with Him, as I did very, very frequently, I would fall on my knees and find it impossible to ask for anything with any earnestness except that His will might be done in earth as it is done in heaven. I have to tell you, this is also, in talking with my wife last night, I said to her, I don't have anything to ask God for. All I want is his will to be done. I'm not going to ask him for a new car. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him for success. I'm not going to ask him for for anything. I'm going to say, Lord, whatever you want to give me, I gladly receive. I want you, Jesus. And I'm not going to be anxious and be concerned about this or that. I just give it totally into Jesus' hands. He has promised that he will send revival. I have absolute confidence he is going to send revival. I want you to hear, I did not say that I will bring revival. No, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. So now, I'm eagerly watching for what he wants to do, because I have total peace that his will might be done on this earth as his will is done in heaven. This prayer is swallowing up every other concern of my heart. He writes, I began to preach to the congregation in accordance with this new and enlarged experience. A considerable number of people in the church saw that my manner of preaching had changed. I presume the people were more aware than I was of the great change, of course. My mind was too full of the subject to preach anything except a full and present salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, it seemed as if my soul was wedded to Christ in a sense in which I'd never thought possible before. The language of the Song of Solomon became as natural to me as my breath. I thought I could understand well the state of Solomon when in he wrote this book. And I concluded that he wrote it after he had been reclaimed from his great backsliding. I hope that's true. The Lord lifted me so much above everything and anything that I'd experienced before and taught me so much in the meaning of the Bible of Christ's power that I'd often found myself saying to him, I'd not known or imagined that any such thing was true. I then realized what it meant by the saying, 
that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3.20. Please, brothers and sisters, we have lived, I have lived, at such a low level of Christian life. I don't want to dwell in the desert land walking with Jesus. I want to walk as it describes in the Song of Solomon. I want to walk in the joy of the Lord in total, complete trust. Now I recognize many of you listening may have no clue what I'm talking about. And you're saying, oh, pastor, forget it. You're good to go. You love Jesus. We love your preaching. Just keep doing it. No, I'm trying to be very straight with you. I have lived and walked for most of my life in a very shallow place with Jesus. I'm always reaching out for more. I'm always searching for more. I don't want to live that way anymore. Do you hear me when I say that? I don't want to die with the cry of my heart being, I want more of Jesus. I want his fullness now. I want the fullness of his presence and his power and his love. I'm not willing to live at a cheap and shallow level. I'm pressing hard to walk into this place that Finney is describing, this place of total joy, of total peace, of total surrender to the Lord. See, part of the reason why I've lived at that shallow place is that I've had my own agendas. I've had things that I wanted, things that I was concerned about, places I wanted to go, things I wanted to be, accomplishments I wanted to have. And I'm now in the name of Jesus just casting all of that off. I don't want any of it. I want the fullness of Jesus. I don't want to walk in the shallowness. And this only comes from an honest searching of our hearts for hours in scripture and in prayer, in earnestly cutting off everything of self and resting in Jesus. That's why it's been so important for me to talk about the seven-day Sabbath, where every day of the week my heart is utterly given to Jesus and searching and obeying and getting to that place of absolute surrender, to that place where this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians twelve nine just leaps into my heart when he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Probably like me, you've never understood the depth of that. Oh, my brother and sister, we've been so shallow. I've been so shallow. I'm so grateful you have walked with me. I'm so grateful that you have been moved by the Spirit to give for this broadcast. But I must also say I am so sorry for my own shallowness before God and before you. I found myself, he writes, exclaiming, wonderful, 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 as these revelations were made to me. I could understand what the prophet meant when he said, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6. He writes, I spent nearly the rest of the winter until I was 
obligated to return home in instructing the people in regard to the fullness that is in Christ. But I found that I preached over the heads of the majority of the people. They didn't understand me. Yet there were some who did, and they were wonderfully blessed in their souls and made more progress in the divine life than they had ever made before. I labored that winter mostly for a revival of the faith among Christians. The Lord prepared me to do so by the great work he'd brought about in my own soul. Although I had much of the divine life working within me at times, I could not see that I had ever before been in the true communion with God. In light of what I have now been shown, all my former experiences still seem to be sealed up and almost lost sight of. As the great excitement of that season subdued and subsided, my mind became very calm. I saw more clearly the different steps of my Christian experience. I came to recognize that all those steps were brought about by God from beginning to end. Since then, I've never had those great struggles and long seasons of agonizing prayer that I had often experienced. I can now come to God with more calmness because I came with more perfect confidence. He enables me now to rest in Him and to let everything sink into His perfect will with much more readiness than before the experience of that winter. Now he writes in this same chapter on the subject of his wife. She died, and he was heartbroken. It was a great affliction to him, but there was no resistance to the will of God. I gave her up to God without any resistance, he writes, but it was still a great sorrow. The night after she died, I was lying in my room alone, and some Christian friends were sitting up in the room alone. Some Christian friends had come to spend that evening also. I'd been asleep for a little while, and as I awoke, the thought of my bereavement flashed over my mind. My wife was gone. I would never hear her speak again or see her face again. Her children were motherless. What would I do? My brain seemed to reel. I rose instantly from my bed, exclaiming, I will go mad if I cannot rest in God. The Lord calmed my mind. One day on my knees, communing with God on the subject of my wife, all at once he seemed to say to me, You loved your wife, didn't you? Yes, I said. Well, did you love her for your own sake or for her sake? Did you love her or yourself? If you loved her for her sake, why are you sad that she's with me? Should you not rejoice in her happiness with me instead of mourning? If you loved her for her own sake, did you love her for my sake? If you loved her for my sake, surely you would not grieve that she is with me. Why do you think of your loss instead of thinking of her gain? Can you be sorrowful when she is so joyful and happy? I can never describe the feelings that came over me after this. It, it produced an instantaneous change in my whole state of mind. From that moment, sorrow on account of my loss was gone forever. I no longer thought of my wife as dead, but as alive in the midst of the glories of heaven. My faith was at that time so strong and my mind so enlightened that it seemed to me that I could enter into my wife's state of mind in heaven. Well, that's all the time we have for today. He had to pass that final test where his concern was for himself and his sadness and his sorrow at the passing of his wife. 
I too have had to walk through that. When my late wife, Jan, died, I said, is my sorrow for myself and my aloneness, or is my sorrow for her? And it became immediately clear to me that my sorrow was not for her, it was for me. That she was rejoicing in the presence of the Lord, and I could not in any manner wish her to come back. She was where she most wanted to be. We always said Jesus stands between us. So Jesus had first right to Jan's life. That's a vital, important thing for me. I no longer will spend any time walking in shallowness before God. I'm going to continue searching the scriptures. I'm going to continue in agonizing prayer until I have the victory. Now, I'm, I understand what I'm saying. Pastor David Wilkerson was my brother. He was my pastor. He was my father in the faith. And he spent much time in agonizing prayer before God. But I want to tell you, he never came through like Charles Finney did, even to the time when he died. I want, with all my heart, to come through in victory, in totally submitting everything into the hand of God. Friends have forsaken me. Family members have cut me off. I have looked in every way like a failure to many. I no longer will consider any of that. Some people get very angry with me, but I don't preach or teach or live for them. I preach and I teach and I live for Jesus Christ. So it's all in his hands. I hope this has been helpful to you. I'd love to hear from you and thank you for each of those of you who are so kindly giving for the work of the gospel. Thank you. You can write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346. That's Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. National Prayer Chapel, one word, dot com. And... You're welcome to come and worship with us on a Thursday evening or you're welcome to come and worship with us on Sundays. The worship service begins at 10 a.m. and we finish at noon. If you'd like to come, go to the webpage nationalprayerchapel.com and you'll find there the directions. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I pray... You will search after Jesus with all your heart. I'll talk to you soon. Who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with